as a church, the reason we're in this together is because we have had a life-changing experience with Jesus. All of us are coming from different backgrounds. We come from different perspectives. We come from all types of different influences along our life and during our life. Some of us made that decision when we were really young, when we were children through a children's ministry or through godly parents or through godly grandparents and influences in our life, teachers, different people who helped us when we were young. Others of us made that decision when we were old. But in every single case, each one of us who share in this body of Christ, as the video describes it, this, this body of Christ that is together, growing together, and is together in ministry, we made a decision to trust in Jesus. We made a decision to trust him with our sins and our failures, to trust him with the issues that have haunted us, to trust him for a future to trust him for the days ahead and the experiences ahead all the way into eternity. The decision to trust in Jesus isn't a point in time that just stops at that point in time. It is a point in time that according to the Greek language is perfect tense. It continues without stop. We trusted Jesus in that moment. We've trusted Jesus since. We're gonna trust Jesus tomorrow. We're gonna trust Jesus when we're in eternity. And that experience unites us and that experience gives us the motivation and the catalyst for wanting to share that experience. We talk about, Josh quoted it earlier in the service, we talk about wanting to invite others into a life-changing relationship with Jesus one conversation at a time. Because it is the single most important and significant experience we've ever had. Any one of us, so it's not just me, it's, it's all of us together as a community, together as a church, together as a ministry. The one thing that significantly changed our lives was meeting Jesus, finding out that he's real, surrendering ourselves, giving ourselves, however you want to describe that process of yielding trust to him and saying, be a part of my life. And he fulfilled that trust and he continues to fulfill that trust. And that's why we want to share it. We all understand this at a very basic level. We understand that meeting Jesus was the most transformative, the most life-changing thing that's ever happened to us. That doesn't mean we haven't had other great experiences. That doesn't mean that we didn't fall in love with somebody, get married to that person. It doesn't mean we didn't have children. It doesn't mean we didn't have good experiences at work. It doesn't mean we didn't have bad experiences at work that changed to other work that was good experience. It doesn't mean that we haven't had hard times or difficult times or, or sorrow or grief. But in every time, regardless of where it falls on an emotional pendulum, so to speak, back and forth between the really difficult and the really just unbelievably exciting, Every time, what we understand now is that Jesus made the difference. And that's why we would want to share a life-changing story. We, we do this all the time, and, and you know it. There, when something impacts us, when we feel loyal to that, we talk about it, we demonstrate it, and we share it. And it's, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul was a part of our church because our church is biblical in a very real way he is. We follow what the precepts are of Scripture and we design and build our programs based upon Scripture. But in Ephesians chapter two, as he's writing to that church in Ephesus, it's like he's just taking a moment to say, what does it mean 
to have a life-changing relationship with Jesus? What does it mean in a semi-technical fashion? What does it mean in terms of what God's done? What does it mean in terms of what God's going to do and continue to do? What does it mean in terms of who we were prior to meeting Jesus? He describes this process of transformation, which helps us to know that when we share that, when we visit with our friends, when we visit with coworkers, when we visit with fellow students and we talk to them and we tell them about how Jesus has made such a huge difference in our life, we know why. Because we know what we were, we know how that change happened, and we know who we have become and who we are in Christ. And it begins to define us. We are defined by the change. We're defined by the transformation. So we don't have to be embarrassed about that because it does define us. That change, that significant moment when we met Jesus and he began working in our lives in a new, fresh way because we were open to it. I think just about all of us who have experienced this life change would tell you he was working in my life long before I trusted him. It took the change, it took the transformation for me to be looked back and say, oh, you know what, on that evening, When these guys were telling me this, it was God moving, trying to draw me into a relationship with him. Oh, on that evening, when I was completely by myself and I was reflecting on my thoughts and I was kind of reviewing how things aren't going the way that they reasonably could or sustainably should, that was God speaking to me. I didn't know it at the time. I look back on it after the change and see that. And now I live with an expectation that each and every day, each and every week, and each and every moment, God's continuing to change and God's continuing to watch over and God's continuing to care. And so we look at a more technical description of it just because it helps us with the foundation. You don't have to be an absolute student of theology and, and religious issues to understand how to tell somebody your life's been changed. You already know that. But it's a part of our growth. It's a part of our, the depth of our lives that we want to understand it. We want to understand it from God's perspective. We want to understand it from our perspective. We want to understand it from our friend's perspective. We want to understand what this transformation is. And Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1. I'm going to read the entire section, 10 verses we're going to look at. So Ephesians toward the back of your Bible. Chapter two is obviously the second major subdivision in the book, and then there's individual subdivisions, which are verses. Those have individual numbers, so if you're new to Scripture today, you're just now looking it up on your phone or or in a Bible that you might have handy or available. Um, If you have neither of those, I encourage you, go to the YouVersion app. That's the app our church uses. It has the Scripture in any version. We're using the Christian Standard Bible version, the most accurate version available in this generation, and that's what we use because we want to understand it and we want to apply it to our lives. So just pause for a second, though. You can read along with me, but just pause for a second and kind of listen to what Paul says to this very young church. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, This is Ephesians chapter two, I'm in verse three. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. 
but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now that's a lot of things Paul's saying in that passage of scripture. So if this is day one of your transformation experience, meeting and knowing Jesus, don't get overwhelmed um, and don't let it sort of stop or hinder you. We're going to look at the simplicity of the overall in-depth concepts Paul is portraying here. What you would want to recognize first and foremost is the phrase, and it's in here twice, God has saved us by his grace. Look specifically at verse eight, and I would underline this one. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Absolutely essential to understanding the transformation, understanding the changes, we can't do it. We didn't do it. So when we talk to people about a life-changing relationship with Jesus, we are not talking about what we accomplished because we couldn't accomplish it. We couldn't change our life. We needed the intervention of God and God did that out of his grace. God did that out of his absolute unconditional love that said, you know, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You ever done that? You ever felt that way at times? You're giving a gift and you, you recognize up front that the person that's receiving it probably isn't going to be as gracious as they should, probably shouldn't be, wouldn't be as thankful as they should? Or have you ever been on the other side of that equation and received a gift? And this, the magnitude of the gift or the nature of the gift, something about the way it was given, you stop for a second and you thought, I, I didn't deserve this. I wasn't worth this. That's what it's like to receive this gift of salvation, this gift of change, this gift of a relationship from God. I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I never can, never will deserve it. But God chose out of his love to give it to me anyway. And so the very beginning of that conversation in which you invite somebody into a life-changing relationship with Jesus has to acknowledge it's not because of us. It's not what we did. It's not what we've accomplished. Even the concept of faith is a recognition of what God has done so that it is, as Paul describes it in verse eight and in verse nine, it's not from works. It's not from accomplishment. It's not from deeds. It is only from God. So the only boasting that takes place, the only bragging that takes place in a life-changing conversation is the bragging that God loves us that much. Because pre-transformation, we're everything but gifted and grace-filled and experiencing mercy. We're the opposite. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve his love. And what we do deserve 
is the appropriate discipline for those who have been disobedient. And that's what Paul describes. In verse one, in the first part of verse two, he's talking about how pre-transformation, we're dead. We are characterized by death. We are dead in our trespasses, our sins, those transgressions, those things that we did wrong and those things that we should have done and we didn't do that relieves us from the ability and it captures us so that we can't be in relationship with God. This is the way we used to live. In verse three and two, the last part of verse two, the first part of verse three, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the disobedient. The most amazing thing to me statistically as I see it year after year when I read different reports and surveys is the vast majority of Americans still believe in some kind of God. They can't define the God but they believe in some kind of deity, which quite honestly, just kind of a side note here, is absolutely ridiculous. You shouldn't believe in anything you can't define in some form or a fashion. Now, I'm not saying you can put God into a bottle, stick him up on the shelf like you would a, a, like one of those ships in a glass bottle and sit out there and go, oh, that's so beautiful. Because you can't do that. He's way beyond that kind of definition. But you ought to be able to know which God you believe in and what that God does and how that God functions and where that God is and what is he doing in our world today. You ought to be able to ask the basic reporting questions, who, what, when, where, and how of who God is and you ought to be able to answer that. It's not just generic beyond the need for description. But still today, 98% of Americans think, oh yeah, there's some kind of God. Now, ironically, is only in the mid-30% do they believe in a real devil. It's like, oh yeah, there's evil in the world. But I don't, I don't know who it is and it's not a real person. Even more discouraging is less than 50% of Christians. If we were to take this room right now and we just count it off, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, half of us don't actually believe that Satan is real. Half of us don't even believe that the devil is real. This may be our biggest problem in Christianity today. Paul describes Satan as a ruler who is in the power of the air with others of his multitude, his army, and he'll go into in-depth description of this in chapter six. That spirit, that Satan, that devil is now working in the hearts of disobedient. You are characterized by death prior to transformation and you are characterized by slavery to Satan. That God you can't name, you can't describe, you can't tell what, who he is, guess what? The main reason you can't do it is because he's not really a God. He is a demonic angel in rebellion against God and he holds us. And sometimes that hold is really visible and really obvious. Sometimes it's a little more insidious and it's not as aware. It's in those everyday decisions that keep us from having a relationship with a God who loves us, with a God who designed and created us and said, I I want you to look like me, I want you to be like me so I can have conversation and relationship with you. Pre-transformation, we're enslaved. We are, as verse three says, those people who previously lived among them all the, all the evil, all those who are disobedient in our fleshly desires, carrying the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, just living by basic instinct that only preserves the basics of who we are and gratifies the most immediate desires 
That's who we were prior to, prior to transformation. As a result of that rebellion, as a result of that life prior to transformation, prior to change, we are, in verse three, children of wrath, just as they are. The pre-transformation picture is bleak. And I, you know, I'll be the first to say, when I made that decision to trust in Jesus and I understood that life-changing relationship with Jesus, I didn't totally get it. I mean, I knew everything wasn't right. I, know, I knew everything wasn't perfect. But I didn't understand that in that imperfection, in those things that at times seemed wrong, in those things that if I had had a concept of sin, I would have described as sin because I just knew something about this isn't right. I didn't know that intrinsically in my heart, God had created a desire for me to know him and that life of death, that life of enslavement, that life creates wrath, punishment, and I'm separate from God. Because as Paul will describe in other places and all the apostles describe in other places and Jesus described in other places, holiness cannot dwell with unholiness. Imperfection can't dwell with perfection. So a change has to happen. A change has to take place. Otherwise, I continue in that degrading and deteriorating lifestyle. Like I said, sometimes it's more obvious. Sometimes the sins are so obvious. It tears up families. It destroys countries. It destroys cities. It destroys neighborhoods. It destroys people. I was real tempted to show it this morning, but it's, it's actually not very appealing um, but we were shown at the men's dinner Thursday night, we were, we were shown pictures of a meth addict. And that meth addict on their first bust, quite honestly, looked better than most of you. She was attractive, she was healthy, she looked like anybody else. I actually told Carrie when I got home that night, I said it, she looked like she was at women's ministry on Sunday. That was her first bust. Then we were showed the graphic pictures. You guys were there, you saw it along with me. On the second bust, and the third bust, and the fourth bust. And out of, out of a sense of propriety, the speaker didn't show us the fifth bust and the sixth bust. And I didn't ask what happened after the sixth bust because I've done those funerals. I know what happens after the sixth bust. That's when they don't call the police and they call the preacher. Because they don't have a minister they don't have family that has ministers. They don't have funds. They don't have resources. And so the only thing they can call is a guy like me who's willing to come over and do a service and help that family understand that if there had been change, this would be a different story today. And there's still the opportunity for, to make that decision for the family. For the deceased, no. We rightfully deserve the wrath of God because of our willful separation. And this is just the way it is. Our inclination is to everything fleshly and everything contrary to the personality and character of God separates us from him. But here's the good part. Here's, here's what we need to hold on to. Here's, here's the section you need to underline in your Bible or circle. And here's what you need to remember when you talk to somebody at school this week about a life-changing relationship with Jesus is verse four, but God. And that's where the change happens. But God. 
Everything else has been our own doing. Everything else has been culture's doing. Everything else has been the system's doing. Everything else has led us to that point of separation that leads us only to wrath and destruction. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Having a life-changing relationship with Jesus, inviting somebody to have a life-changing relationship with Jesus is the but God moment. But God. What I couldn't do, what nobody else could do, what, what was going to continue to spiral downhill into a path of destruction that would lead even into eternal destruction, all of that gets stopped because God steps into the journey. And I say, okay, God, if you love me this much, if you, if you care so much for me, you're willing to make me alive in Christ, if you're willing to love me this in depth, if you're willing to use your grace to challenge me and change me, then I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to step into that relationship. It's just yielding to his love. It's just yielding to his help and his compassion. You know, I've, I've trained dogs for multiple decades. And one of the most difficult things to train in a dog is trust. They have to believe, as their master, I have their best interest in mind. They have to believe that if they're in a situation that's dangerous, I would do anything to rescue and help. They have to believe that in any set of circumstances, I will make sure that their needs are met. I will make sure they have shelter. I will make sure they have feed. Absolute requirement for training dogs if it's going to be a one-person dog who pays attention and gives their complete loyalty to you. They might include your family because they're pack animals, but if you're gonna train and compete them and utilize them for work purposes that they were bred and designed for, you have to feed them. You delegate that out and you wonder why the dog loves your wife more than you? You deserve it, buddy. You're the one that gave up on the most important thing. Tell the kids, oh kids, you're responsible for feeding the dog. What you just told the dog is the kids are in charge of the house. I don't know if it's true or not in your house, so I'm not saying anything about family necessarily, but I'm saying in the dog's mind, you just said, the one who's going to take care of me is my son or my daughter. And so my kids grew up in a house, right or wrong, where they sometimes helped out, but primarily every single meal I fed them. And they have always been loyal. If it can work that simply with a dog, then what are we? The created image of God, how are we supposed to respond when we realize God loves us so much that he shows up at every meal. I'm gonna run meals for you for the rest of your life this morning. When I say grace, when I bless the food or when I ask the kids to do it or Carrie does it, that's what I think. God put my bowl in front of me. Now I'm so thankful it's not kibble. I'm really thankful for that. And so I just stop and say thank you God. Because as much as I love H-E-B, they didn't provide my meal. As much as I love my paycheck, it didn't provide my meal. As much as I love my wife and all the effort and work she does to maintain our household, she didn't provide the meal. Ultimately, that meal doesn't get exist and that meal doesn't happen 
when it's put in front of me unless God was a part of the process. Because everything in this world is his. But God. That's the life-changing moment when we just stop for a moment and we take a deep breath and we realize, hold it, if God loves me this much, then why won't I trust him? The most dynamic experience of that I had while training dogs is when we train them to swim. And I would take them out to the local river, lake, pond, detention area, whatever I could find water. And they would begin as puppies to start to struggle and fight because they're initially, even though my dogs are bred for water, they're initially afraid of water. But at some point in that process, I'm in the water with them. I am holding them in the water. So we're both soaking wet and they're struggling and scratching and fighting. But at some point in that moment, they just relax. And then they just look up at you with those deep, dark brown eyes that you love so much, lick you on the face. And that's their way of saying, Thanks. I'm secure. Most of our struggles with God are just simply because we're afraid. Relax. I hate to say this over the internet, but just take a deep breath, lick God in the face, and say, I trust you. It's, it's that simple because but God intervened. And not only is he taking care of all these bad things in pre-transformation and post-transformation, he's raising us up. He makes us alive in Christ. In verse six, he elevated us up with him so that we are seated with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he may display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to all of us in Christ Jesus. My destiny is a throne You may have seen that this past week with all the pomp and circumstance. My destiny is a throne because Christ wants me to rule with him. There are hard times ahead in my future, but in the eternal perspective, there's nothing as great and as meaningful as being elevated up and living with Christ. And again, all by grace. We looked at this at the very beginning. For you are saved by grace through faith. That's the trust. That's the moment you stop struggling, you look up into God's face and say, okay, you're gonna take care of me. Not of ourselves, we talked about that, not as works, so that none of us have the reason to boast. We're not boasting to our neighbors, we're not boasting to our friends, we're not boasting to our coworkers, we're not boasting to our fellow, fellow students, we're not bragging about it because we didn't do it. But we are extremely thankful and extremely ready to tell other people about a life-changing relationship with Jesus because Jesus made all the difference in the world. And he loves me that much and I understand that now. So it's not a big deal for me to help my friends know that he loves them that much. And then ironically, in the recreation of this whole moment of life change and post-transformation, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The love of God captures us and brings us back to the very place he wanted us in the first place. He designed us for post-transformation. He did not design us for pre-transformation. We got there all on our own. But he designed us for post-transformation. He designed us to be the people that would be an influence that changes the world. You want to change our really sick, disturbed, and, and, and destructive culture and society? Then find somebody this week to share with them about a life-changing relationship with Jesus. 
it can change the world. One conversation at a time.